It's a full house on this week in the CLE with all of our regulars back for this episode. It's the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Chris Warnowski. Welcome back all. We got lots to talk about. Let's get to it. What are the Republican legislators who want to impeach Ohio Governor Mike DeWine thinking? Jane Cahoon, I don't know that there's any case in history where members of the party <laughs> of an elected executive are the ones that file the articles of impeachment. If there are, it's extremely rare and it's kind of stupid. What are they thinking? <laughs> well, I think even the one of the guys who's behind this says the Legislative Service Commission told him there there weren't any other cases like this. But anyway, I think you can uh, understand this a little better if we if we shed a little light on who these guys are. Uh, so they're three of the the most far right members of the Ohio House. Uh, John Becker is kind of leading the charge. He's in the past declared himself a proud member of the so-called caveman caucus. Nino Vitale is, is the guy who called for an end to coronavirus testing, refused to wear a mask because he didn't want to cover the face of God, and described himself as darker skinned <laughs> than the members of the legislative black caucus in really mocking their attempt to declare racism a public health crisis. And then we have Paul Zeltwanger, who was named by disgrace ex-House Speaker Larry Householder to head up this um, economic task force that was really just pushing for the reopening of the businesses that were closed during the pandemic. And Zeltwanger brought in people like, for example, a business owner who said that DeWine's business clo uh, closings were nothing but an attempt to defeat Donald Trump's re-election bid, um, like a conspiracy. So anyway, I think you can sort of tell where these where these guys are coming from. They're, they're still upset with DeWine's coronavirus restrictions. And even though businesses have reopened, you know, the rules that people have to live by. So they drew up these 10 articles of impeachment, you know, accusing him of all sorts of awful things like violating the separation of powers, conspiring with Secretary of State Frank LaRose to cancel the primary election and shut down schools and give you know, on the basis of bad data and requiring face masks and you, you name yeah, it. Okay. But so, so, all right, they're fringe of the fringe. These, you know, these guys are kind of way out there. This has no chance of, of going anywhere. They don't need to do this to win re-election re in their gerrymandered districts. Why do it? I, I just I, I don't understand the motive for it. Are they doing it as a favor to Householder because he's mad that DeWine didn't stand up for him when he was ousted as a disgraced guy involved in a sixty million dollar bribery scheme? <laughs> yeah, you know, I'd be a uh, I I'd be tempted to dismiss that theory, but you know, as I said, Zeltwanger we know was was named by Householder to this committee, and I think even after Householder was arrested, he was sort of like, well, I want to see due process. So you could be onto something. I don't know. You know, only they know their motives. But I suspect if, if Larry Householder isn't totally preoccupied with finding legal representation at the moment, he <laughs> might be getting a kick out of this. Mike DeWine has been applauded largely for especially the beginning of the pandemic. I know Chris will argue that he opened up Ohio too soon. 
But I think most people who've watched his briefings where he's regularly appearing before the people and explaining himself would agree that he's trying to do the best job he can for Ohio, given all of the demands on the job. This would this seems like it's a venal effort to restrain an executive from doing what he thinks is best to keep people safe. And I think you said yesterday, Jeremy, Jeremy's the one that did the story, right? That looked at, are there ramifications of something, even when it's stupid and has no chance of happening? Yeah. He, he talked to a case law professor who, who kind of pointed out the dangers of this, you know, it's like you're essentially criminalizing political disagreement and, you're sort of like the boy who cried wolf on this stuff and that they could really be jeopardizing things for future chief executives to who are, you know, who need to try to protect the public. I don't know. Like, I mean, can you think of one meaningful policy proposal related to the coronavirus that any of these three people (laughs) would put out there? Like, no, I mean, honestly, I mean, here we are. Restraining you know, the we're, power. We're, we're, of we're wasting our news resources writing about something <laughs> and, and giving publicity to something when none of these people put out one meaningful policy proposal related to the coronavirus. I mean, it just seems it seems like we're giving they got exactly what they wanted out of it. We wrote about it. We're we're talking about it right now. And and really, I mean, what like I'm not so much interested in like how angry they are about, you know, Mike DeWine circumventing the the will of the legislature i mean the legislature what were they busy doing getting their getting the house leader indicted i mean what you know where okay i'm just a couple gonna resign things, right I mean, now because it, you know <laughs> it, it is news when elected legislators oh, file yeah, articles of impeachment we are going to talk about it. we're going to report it i mean i think the senate president larry alpov said it best when he said they're not what did he say legislatively they're active grandstanding <laughs> yeah you know yeah. so they're not very active as legislators this is their one true act and as chris points out that's you know they should have been working on the coronavirus and these anyway, are republicans i mean republicans are going a bit crazy here over this maybe the more quote unquote mainstream ones like the party chair Jane Timken, who must be like, why are you doing this when we, we're just starting the Republican National Convention this week? You know, she issued a very strong statement condemning them, saying it's a baseless and feeble and okay, they just want to create attention for themselves. And uh, so that's it's interesting how that's playing Look- out. It gets back to my argument yesterday that people need to feel like they're part of some sort of tribe warring with other tribes. The Republicans have gotten so huge in the legislature, they're fracturing into their own tribes and attacking each other. It's a bizarre situation, uh, and we'll have to see where it goes. Probably nowhere. It's this week in the CLE. What do we think the odds are that Browns fans will find a way to tailgate this fall even with the city banning all tailgating from its traditional home in the Muni lot and other parking lots. Laura Johnston, it's, it was pretty inevitable that the city would ban tailgating because we've all seen the pictures and been there. We know how close people get as they're drinking, and it's like coronavirus central if they were to get together. But Browns fans are a pretty, uh, pretty resourceful lot. Do we really think there won't be tailgating this fall? 
I think it's better chances than that Browns zero win record a few years ago. Uh, maybe even last year's record. I think that these folks are going to find a way to gather, even if it's not at the Muni lot. There might be a whole lot of boats in the Cleveland Harbor or cars in a parking garage somewhere, or maybe socially distant standing outside in public square. I don't, or the mall. I don't know what it's going to be, but Browns fans like to find each other for um, moral support, I think. <laughs> so the Browns first game is scheduled for Thursday, September 17th against the Cincinnati Bengals. The NFL has not yet announced plans for allowing fans in regular season games, but those Cleveland restrictions are there. And that doesn't surprise you. I mean, Frank Jackson has been out there since the beginning of the coronavirus. Um, I remember his story in like May, maybe saying, we're not going to issue permits for any summer gatherings. And that's when the Metro Parks were canceling their season for Edgewater live. And it was like, whoa, like Frank Jackson's been out there saying, no, this is the rule. You can't have more than 10 people and we're not going to let it happen. Okay. But, but if you know that Browns fans are likely to do this anyway, would it have made more sense to parcel off the Muni lot with distance and parking and, and some basic rules a couple of times just to see if people would behave. I think everybody saw the picture of that concert out in a field a week or two ago where they had set up pretty much like cow stalls with Mm -hmm. fences to keep each group separate from each other. The Browns may be the only thing we got going this fall, if if it gets played, if they don't all get the coronavirus. And I'm a little bit surprised the city didn't at least try. The mini lot is huge, and and it might have given people some sense of community, you know, and you might be able to count on people to be responsible if you organized it right. Well, it depends how much alcohol is involved in the responsibility. But what's funny is that tailgating is by out, its nature, obviously, outdoors and there's more space. And, you know, we just had that uh, parking lot social that we took pictures of and had online where, like, literally the event was for people to come in their cars and stay socially distant. So if there's any any way that you could gather responsibly, you think tailgating would be one of them. I mean, it, it, you're going to be more separated than in the stadium for sure. But I think the issue is that Cleveland doesn't want to be responsible for that. And, you know, we, we mentioned this alcohol plays a huge role in this. And if people are eating and drinking, they're not wearing masks and they're probably not going to be thinking with their best mind. Right. I guess it's just, it's the debate between, okay, lock it down, prohibit it, keep people miserable or try something novel that might give people reason to celebrate and let them know, look, we're going to try this once. If you do what you're supposed to do, we'll keep doing it. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, we'll shut it down. They they went straight for let's shut it down. And again, I, I won't be surprised to see the orange and brown buses and vans showing up somewhere and figuring out some way to to carry it off in a, in a private lot. We'll have to see. It's this week in the CLE. What is the RTA trying to keep secret about discipline given to its new acting police chief in a harassment case? Chris Ranowski, it's amazing. Uh, uh, Reporter Courtney Astolfi found this within days of this guy being named police chief. RTA is keeping things secret and the records are hard to find. What's going on with this one? Yeah, so... the the department and the agency is not really saying whether uh, acting police chief Mike Michael Gettings uh, was disciplined as a result of a 2018 harassment complaint that was filed against him. So you know, as part of his being hired, we requested his personnel file, and in it is pretty much nothing related to discipline. However, 
there's some questions uh, still sort of surrounding this uh, complaint that was filed against him that that he had harassed somebody who worked with him at the RTA. And when we inquired about whether where it was at in this file, if there was anything, we were kind of sort of cryptically told that there was attorney client privilege and, and that it wasn't in the file. So the victim of their harassment was uh, someone by the name of Orlando Hudson and, and Orlando remains on the RTA police force as an acting commander. And Hudson also filed a racial discrimination lawsuit against the agency and, and Joyce. So it, this is a story that just, it started out as complicated and it has continued to get more complicated as, as we sort of peel back everything that's going on. Yeah, the disappointing thing is that the records appear to be missing from the file. I mean, if if there was discipline, and there was, why isn't it listed? And why wouldn't there have been a discussion by RTA officials before they named somebody with that history? This is recent, mm-hmm. um, uh, the, their acting police chief. It's just another another dumb move by the RTA. We'll have to see where that one goes. I'm sure Courtney will continue working on it. That's the other mistake that agencies make by delaying the release of things. We do five or six stories instead of just one. Right. And it keeps it in front of everybody, which will be important when it comes time for RTA to ask people for tax support. Mm-hmm. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How does letting school students learning remotely do so from daycare centers or boys and girls clubs not defeat the entire purpose of remote learning. Jane Cahoon, I, I was kind of surprised by Mike DeWine's order allowing this. If the whole idea is that when you get kids together in school, they're big time carriers of the coronavirus, they'll spread it, take it home, infect their parents and grandparents, and we'll have a big surge. Then why would you say, okay, you can get them together in daycare centers? Wouldn't the same result come about? Well, they're they're just trying to help Laura Johnston and other parents <laughs> like her who are trying to juggle, you know, making sure their kids learn remotely with work. So this announcement on Monday was was for this expanded license so that daycare centers can care for school aged children who are learning remotely. And as you said, groups uh, have stepped forward like the Boys and Girls Club, and they're, they're going to launch these club smart learning centers for students with, with digital only classes, and they, they could serve as many as a thousand kids a day. Now, I'm not sure exactly how they plan to distance the kids, or I mean, I'm sure they've, they've still got to follow all the rules with the masks and the sanitizing and everything. So, but I don't know if I can, uh, answer your question. <laughs> I, I just don't see it. I mean, I, it seems like that we will have a mini surge in Cuyahoga County if a bunch of kids get together. I get it. The daycare centers will say we're keeping them separate. And, you know, we did report not long ago that the number of cases that you could trace back to daycare centers was fairly small. I think it was less than 500 adults and children. Uh, but that was when daycare centers were very limited in their population. And those limits have now been lifted. Um, I, 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 and I know Laura Johnson's going to weigh in here with the frustration of parents. So go ahead, Laura, let us have well, it. I just want to know what you think people are supposed to do. I mean, once kids get to maybe like fifth or sixth grade, they can do this on their own. And, you know, you might be able to leave your kids at home unsupervised. But if you have an elementary school age kid who does not go to daycare, we're talking kindergarten through fourth grade, maybe, what are you supposed to do with them if you're learning? I mean, 
I, we talked about pods on here. I know people that have hired private teachers and are getting groups of, you know, four or five or six kids together. But I, honestly, I salute these centers for, for standing up and saying, we realize there's a problem and we are trying our best to solve it. Um, the YMCA is offering it as well. And we've had really good experiences with them. Um, I, I know it's a very difficult situation. I don't think anyone's choosing this as their perfect solution. I think it's a last ditch effort. Like, you know, I can't have my parents care for them. I can't do my job or I have to leave my house. I mean, I, I think there's a very sticky situation. They're trying to do their best. So, so what you're basically saying is some level of surge and all the ramifications that come with that is okay. Cause parents are frustrated. No, I'm saying, I don't know what the solution is. If this is not, you know, like, I don't know what it would be if a parent has to go to work like, what do you do with this kid? <laughs> Does anyone have other suggestions? Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why can't Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost participate in a U.S. Supreme Court hearing about the future of Obamacare? Jane Cahoon, this is not a huge story, but, but Dave Yost does use his office to get involved in lawsuits across the country, much the way Mike DeWine did before him. Uh, but he's been kind of stuffed on this one. Yeah, he, he tried to get involved in this case, which which originated in Texas. And the U.S. Supreme Court is going to hear oral, oral arguments on this in November after the election. But Yost and the Montana Attorney General uh, tried to get involved by kind of arguing a middle ground. They They don't think the whole Affordable Care Act should be thrown out. In particular, they want to preserve the protections for people with pre-existing conditions. But uh, he does think that the individual mandate requiring everybody to get insurance is, is unconstitutional. In any event, the Supreme Court on Monday denied Yost any, any of the argument time. And he says that's not really a surprise because Ohio is not a party to this case, and it would be unusual for the court to to grant that kind of thing. So basically he said he's, he's disappointed, but, but not really surprised. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How many Northeast Ohio nonprofit institutions got hit by the ransomware hacking attack that was aimed at the global cloud company, Black Bond? Chris Ranowski, we first heard of this with the, one of the museums in university circle, but it turns out there are a bunch of places that use Black Bond. Uh, at, for security. And so we had multiple exposures. Yeah. So last week, somebody e-forwarded us an email that they had received from the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. And it basically said that one of our third party contractors was the uh, victim of a ransomware hacking attack. And as we kind of started to to look at this a little closer, we found out that Blackbaud, which is the company that was targeted in the ransomware attack, uh, actually provide services to a lot of different places. So uh, Holden Forests and Gardens, the Cuyahoga County Community College Foundation, uh, Kent State University were all indirectly affected by the ransomware attack. So, so e- you know, each of the four organizations had shared information with their constituents regarding the attack after learning about it. And Blackboard is, yeah, so you kind of mentioned in your lead up to this that they're a, a kind of a cloud computing organization that provides uh, 
services to nonprofits and, 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 and other places like museums and colleges and, and, uh, Holden Forest, for example, which oversees the botanical gardens and the Holden Arboretum. Blackbot acknowledged that the attack may have removed information such as first and last names, email information, mailing addresses, transactions amounts, and phone numbers of members and guests of the botanical gardens and the arboretum. So, um, and the Cleveland, uh, the Community College Foundation said in a release on August 6th that the data removed uh, may have contained contact information, demographic information, and a history of their uh, of the person's relationship with their organization, such as donation dates and amounts. So, you know, if if you are on mailing lists or donor lists or uh, anything, you may want to do a, a security check and, and and maybe you know maybe see if uh, you know inquire as to whether your information was accessed by you know any of this. This is a ransomware attack, but but they weren't the the local institutions weren't the ones that ended up having to pay something, right? It was really Blackbaud that was the victim of the ransomware part of this, right? So Blackbaud, which they you know all of these organizations buy compute some kind of computing service from Blackbaud. So they're basically a contractor. And so I, I think as a contractor, their obligation was to let everybody know that, you know, your customers or the people who, who frequent your organization, you know, may have been impacted by this. But but yeah, Blackbaud was apparently the 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 target in this attack. Uh, and uh and while they won't they haven't really spoken publicly about it in a very specific degree, but it, it appears that they paid, they paid the ransom that was being asked and they claim that they ensured that the data that these, these, I guess, pirates for the lack of a better word, uh, had, you know, all the information that they had gathered was destroyed before they, they paid it. So they claim that there was no credit card information, uh, no social security numbers or bank account information that was taken as a result of this. But still, you know, it's still kind of alarming, you know, especially, you know, when you contract with a company like this, part of it is, you know, you do it because you feel like you can't do it internally in a safe way. So you you reach out to a company like this and you you hope that stuff like this doesn't happen. But, you know, I mean, we've seen it with major retailers. We've seen it with colleges and and even news organizations people people try to hack them so you know this is this is the world we live in now and and so you know if if again if you're a member of one of these organizations it might be worth uh making sure that all of your information is secure that's it's good advice anyway you should do that a couple of times a year change all your past change your passwords and you know and scan your computer it's this week in the cle What are the chances that people in Northeast Ohio can participate in trials on a promising corona vaccine? And if they can't, what are the chances they're going to be able to find a flu vaccine? Laura Johnson, I'm putting two stories into one about vaccines here. Let's start with the coronavirus vaccine. What's the local news on that? Yeah, so University Hospitals is one of about 120 sites around the world that's testing a possible COVID-19 vaccine. The goal is to get 30,000 participants in a trial. It's supposed to start next week, and this is a phase two, three trial. So they've already gone through one, and in two, the vaccine is given to people who have characteristics similar to those 
for whom the new vaccine is intended, which I would think is everyone at this point. And then in phase three, the vaccine is given to thousands of people. So I sent this out on our subtext message platform yesterday, and I got a lot of responses. It's like, how do I sign up? So I don't think they're going to have a hard time finding them in the Cleveland area. I have a, uh, Julie Washington wrote the story. There's a phone number in there that you can call if you're interested. You know, that's um, really odd because when <laughs> I brought up the Russian vaccine that that is being pushed around the world, that, that hasn't been through phase three. It only went through phase two. And almost everybody said, no way I would take that. So it's odd. You have all these people that are raising their hand to take one that's only been through phase one. You know, I mean, it's like there is a risk to this. It's uh, it's not and it's not guaranteed to work. It's promising, but but it might right. work. I'm surprised that many people wanted to sign up yeah. on, the, on the flip side, even though there are some predictions that all of our coronavirus precautions will reduce the flu season, as it did in South Africa, which just finished its flu season and had almost nothing Area pharmacies are ordering a lot more flu vaccines this year. What's up with that? Yeah, so that has happened in other parts of the world, but there's some suggestion that Americans are not taking coronavirus seriously enough to really tamp down the flu. So places like CVS, Walgreens, they're all ordering more of the flu shot. They believe um, more than 60% of people in a survey from CVS in July said they will definitely or likely get a flu shot this season. That compares to 34% of those surveyed in just in January. So we're talking almost double the percentage. And so the, the places are, are ordering up to like 40% more flu vaccine and they've already started to get it. My husband's already gotten his this year. So you can go and get them now. Okay. It'll be interesting. Are you all getting a flu shot this year? Yes. More yes. than likely, yes. My kids are really excited because you can get them once you're seven, you can get them at the pharmacy instead of having to go to the pediatrician. So they get their $5 Target gift card for getting it there. <laughs> and then they can spend it on whatever they want. Okay. Wow. Bribing kids to get their flu shots. It's Bribing this week. Americans. It's, it's everybody. Yeah, it's this week in the CLE. After last spring's less than successful remote learning experience, Many school districts in Ohio and Northeast Ohio have moved to Zoom as their platform. So should they be worried by yesterday's widespread outages? Laura, yesterday, Laura Johnson, yesterday, Zoom went down in a, yeah. for a significant amount of time. If, if you have thousands upon thousands of kids at home trying to learn via Zoom and it goes down, what is it, party time? I don't know. There was a whole lot of tweets that Emily Bamforth put into her story that, you know, were kids that were just starting their first day of college or school. And they were like, you know, the face palm emoji, like, well, what? Because, you know, it was Zoom, it was Blackboard, which uh, communicates between students and teachers, post-educational content. And they were, it was a wide outage. So like, if you're going to use this platform to learn, it better be working. I mean, I had a Zoom meeting yesterday at like 1030 and it worked just fine. Uh, but just add this to the long list of things that parents, teachers, and students, school administrators, and everyone else is worried about. Well, I'm married to a teacher, and they were in the middle of of their learning to use this effectively, and they couldn't <laughs> log on. And it's like, okay, that's going to be a problem if that is chronic in yeah, the fall. I, I mean, we, you know, Emily did a, a terrific story that published last week in Sunday in the Plain Dealer about how school districts have gotten really ready this time. You know, they weren't ready at all in the spring. It was, I don't want to say a disaster, but it wasn't a high quality education. And they're all kind of going into the fall with enthusiasm and they think they've got it. And then the key platform crashes. This could be really bad. 
Yeah, no, it could be incredibly bad. And forget forget just this, all this. This is kids we're trying to get learning on Zoom, right? So like, you know, a lot of older people have hard time, but like you're going to have a seven-year-old clicking around on this. So it better work. Do you subscribe to the 10-minute rule on Zoom? Like if you can't log <laughs> your in. professor hasn't just <laughs> up, 10 minutes. Not Lord, no, for 10 Lord knows there's nothing else to do on the internet. So so the good thing, <laughs> the good thing is you have a rapt audience that is going to be patient and not and not just sit out. Well, we talked about how daycare centers are taking in a lot of these kids to give them a safe space to learn. What will the daycare centers do if suddenly the kids don't have access to their lessons? The kids will be running rampant in the daycare centers. Uh, Anyway, Zoom has got to get it together because they've convinced a great number of districts to use this platform. So we'll have to see how that goes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, James, we got a briefing today by Mike DeWine. We expecting anything or have we not heard yet? We haven't really heard yet, but you know, there's always there's always something, right? Well, I'm sure somebody will ask him about the effort to impeach him, which um, actually he right. may have a sense of humor about that because it is so silly. <laughs> he may smile. Said he's focused on more important things, you know, like saving lives. <laughs> yeah, but but it, but it is such a preposterous thing that look those briefings. I know at times they can be maddening because parts of it go on. But but if you think about how many people watch those and how they have affected the psyche of Ohio, they were a smart thing to do. I mean, every twice a day, I mean, in the beginning, it was every day, but twice a week, the governor stands before the people of Ohio and explains what he's doing. It just does seem to lower the the temperature a little bit. It was um, a wise move. Okay. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody for listening to this week in the CLE. We will return on Wednesday. 